Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. This program is part two of a poetry open mic on the theme of Revelations from the Edge, Lessons and Gifts from the Mojave Desert. I hosted this open mic recently in Joshua Tree, and I'm offering this program to you because April is National Poetry Month. The relationship between myth and poetry is very close, to say the least, and these poems evoke a place that I deeply connect with, the Mojave Desert. The desert is an archetypal landscape, one that has been very important to the human imagination throughout recorded history. And I say a little bit about that in introductory comments to part one. So if that intrigues you and you didn't listen to part one, uh, go back and find that one and check it out. And in the meantime, I've got some other wonderful poetry here to share with you. Here is Revelations from the Edge, Lessons and Gifts from the Mojave Desert, Part 2. I've just been informed that it's, is it international? World, World Poetry Day today. So we can add synchronicities, plentiful synchronicities to those occurrences in the desert, right? We might have to tell a few stories about that at some point this evening too. Synchronicity, yes. Be here all night. Now, on with the poetry, beginning with Cynthia Anderson. Okay, hey, I'm Cynthia Anderson. And about synchronicities, I'm going to read a couple of poems that are connected to each other, and um, I think synchronicity is the the theme. I guess my experience of the desert living out here almost nine years now is that it sort of comes to you in layers, and when you're ready and when it's ready, it's going to reveal more of itself to you. So that's the way it's been for, for me. And the first poem I'm going to read is about this picture here, which I don't know if you can see it very well, but there is a figure kind of hidden in the rock there, like a human looking with a head and a body there in this great big rock face. This is down by um, Barker, Barker Dam Trail. It's right on the trail. Passed by this who knows how many times before ever seeing it. It's one of those deals. Once you see it, you'll never miss it. But until you do, it's like it's not there, you know, <laughs> which is sort of my experience of the desert. So, And this seeing him kicked off this whole project for Bill and me, this, this book. And um, we discovered a lot more things on Barker Dam Trail after this guy. So um, he inspired a story, and um, this is, it's in the poem. It's called Outlier. He was from a far-off land, or so we guessed, wrapped in skins like a Northman. We could not place his visage or amulets of carved bone. He strode forth at sunset through violet clouds, fearsome yet unsettled, a banished shaman lost without his tribe. He stood some distance from our fire, silent, as night fell around us. At first light, we saw him as you see him now. 
in the rocks where no spell can touch him, where he can touch no one. So so this next poem goes with it. Some considerable time after that and the picture and the book and everything, I was on the Barker Dam Trail with some friends, and we were standing there looking at that guy, at this picture. And all of a sudden, a bighorn sheep popped out right above his, where his head is, right there. One solitary bighorn sheep, just like up there, like the king. And uh, he stood there for a while. We watched him. And after some time, he started coming down from the top of that steep rock face, you know, rock hopping down, 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 till he got down to, you know, our level. And he traveled up the trail parallel to us, you know, some distance away, but easily easy to see. And, you know, we continued walking up. There he was. He was going along with us. And at some point, he kind of fell away. You know, we didn't see him anymore. We thought, wow, that was cool, but that, that was it. So we got up to the dam itself, and all of a sudden, like on a boulder about 15 feet in front of us, he, there he is. He jumps up to the top of this boulder, smack in front of our group, and is just up there. like, you know. And he, stood, he stayed there for quite a while, and we did too with our mouths open and just like <laughs> you know, amazed by this whole thing. And so I felt like that guy in the rock sent his emissary to uh, give us a message. And so that's what this poem is, and the message is at the end. That's called Soothsayer. In the desert, anything is possible. A shaman sequesters in sheer rock, obvious but forgotten. Eons later, strangers spot him. He sends his totem, spiral horns carving sky, granite stare in liquid eye, down, down, the bighorn. Hooves clatter, leap boulder to boulder, bend laws of gravity, play the edges. Half rock follows the trail in parallel, fades into the landscape, then near water, startles the humans head on. Hold steady, travel light, trust your breath and your body. Nothing here can stop you. Let go and land on your feet. The next poet is Noreen Lawler. I'm Noreen Lawler. Anyway, I'm happy to be here. It's so nice to see everybody. Thank you for doing this, Catherine. And uh, yes, yes. Uh, These poems are, I think, works in progress. I've been playing with them for a while, and they seem to have a life of their own. So, the first is called Driving North on 62 Towards Joshua Tree. These mountains have the adagio sweep of Mahler's fifth, as if God has backhanded giant sand piles into shapes. Gorgonio is held up like an outfielder's glove, still smattered with snow. Brittle bush splashes the slope like some gilded glacial wave. I accelerate up the grade to Morongo. Two ravens harry a cooper's hawk overhead. Three black dots in the clear blue sky. 
I want to be up there with them, feel the sting of snow-capped air, outdistance my squawking nemesis's glide home safe. And this one's called Coyote. This is my time. The full moon is cresting over the rocky ridge, and the fire has gone from the sky. I have come to seek whatever shows itself to me. I pad along the arroyo, shake off the dust of the day. Cool sand sticks in the webbing between my toes. The moon moves with me, bounces off my back, lights my way. I throw back my head and howl, sniff the night, slink into the broken shadows of the leaning juniper. Owl's feathers swoosh the tips of my ears. A jackrabbit moves like a blur into the creosote. My limbs move into the leisure of the hunt. (laughs) And I have one last very silly poem. It's called... um, Mouse muse, mouse muse, as in my muse, it's hard to say, mouse muse, and Cooper's hawk. Little gray mouths, open-mouthed, nibbling in the breakin', sunshine on the tiny friend, drinking from the fountain. Open talon, blue-black hawk, swooping from the tree, carries off the dainty mouse, takes her home for tea. Mark Evans. My name is Mark Evans. I'm a recent transplant out here. I love it out here. So uh, I've got two poems here. Thank you for this opportunity, too. This is wonderful. Uh, One's from 10 years ago. One's from last night. This is called Smoke Tree in a Desert Wash. A smoke tree creaks next to me, my sole company, alone, content, whispering water-cooler rumors to the four winds under a sullen summer sun. The heat melts away all my troubles. I sink in the sand where the soil is my soul, my connection to Mother Earth. I grab handfuls of her and watch, mesmerized, as grainy, elusive memories slip through my fingers. I stare at a rusting can, hard evidence of previous human incursion. And for a second, I am angry. But transfixed in deep meditation, I cannot avert my eyes. The delirious smell of the ages captures me, then lets me go. The wind, a blanket of truth, surrounds me with the knowledge that no matter how hard you try, you cannot lie to the sun. In its turn, the sun sheds light on the fact that you cannot lie to a tree. For the tree is all too quick to tell you that the mirage on the horizon is your future. Live now because it will all have changed by the time you got there. And the tree, in turn, heard this from a laughing tortoise. This is the lesson I learned from a smoke tree in a desert wash when I took the time to listen. Here on the side of the interstate, on a road to nowhere, when I broke down when I was drunk in selfish pursuit of wallet-filling dreams fueled by the illusion of what I thought was real. This is called uh, 
And there may be some synchronous material in here from previous poems. So I thought that was kind of amazing. It's called East of Azusa. Everything fights to stay alive in the desert. As natural as breathing, adopt and adapt. Life will always seek another growth medium. The ups and downs of uneasy stomachs on black taffy roads that stretch the limits of imagination, mobilis immobili. Forward thinkers with retrograde concerns, those who, those who hit the West Coast and then bounced back, those left to clean up the mess of destiny. The winds carry them in from the Circus Maximus out to some fringe arena far from the Colosseum of the city. Ramble, bramble, tumbleweeds with long, stretched roots. Their thick skin parched and bathed in light, illuminated minds armed with bone-chilling insight. Earthquakes of thought rise to spiritual elevations, anecdotal revelations. These are new Roman times. Everything fights to stay alive in the desert, Adopt and adapt the ups and downs of uneasy stomachs on black taffy roads that stretch the limits of imagination. Forward thinkers, retrograde concerns, those who hit the West Coast and bounced back, those left to clean up the mess of destiny. They manifest here parallel lines of choice and chance, a unified parallel of lives with an oblique perspective. Lost people and found souls, the disenfranchised, the driven or drawn, the ghosts of Los Angeles now bow to mania, the grandmother of all ghosts. Alfresco vagrants linger with downtrodden Americans, those who have found panhandling to be a living, those who made a wrong turn and never looked back, those whose car broke down and never went back, the afflicted, afflicted, afflicted with hate, afflicted with love, Afflicted with life, ex-Walmart greeters, miscreants and broken angels, slow suicides, shallow grave diggers with loose and tightly wound tattoos, acid casualties, the disabled, auto jockeys adjusting to the mechanics of life, dreamers with fresh palettes, dreamers with burned out palettes, laser focused madmen with blinding visions of beauty cropping a ghost garden of grandeur into strange outcroppings and sundogs. Everything fights to stay alive in the desert, adopt and adapt the ups and downs of uneasy stomachs on black taffy roads that stretch the limits of imagination, mobilis immobili, forward thinkers, retrograde concerns, those who hit the West Coast and bounce back, those who will clean up this mess of destiny. Dry, desolate expanse, speak to me. Desert dwellers drink from deep well of thoughts, alive in a vast dirt prairie where dinosaurs still roam. Just rust and dust, a place to lick the wounds. Heal, breathe, think. A serious long look at who I am is needed. This is the place. For I have a dreamer's mind, but wanderer's legs. The wind whips up ceremony. Dance with your tambourines and your essential nature. Hear the music of the desert. Tutti, allegretto, pianoforte, ostinato in utopia, asylum in Arcadia. Here, discordia and vacuna may enjoy the opiate wildflowers of Pomona and ignore all the other deep-rooted dumbness. The ups and downs of uneasy stomachs on black taffy roads that stretch the limits of imagination, tortured into bulges by the San Andreas. And I no longer care. I have the desert where everything fights to stay alive.
and I no longer care. Life will always seek another growth medium. Greg Gilbert. So I ran into Catherine the other day, and she said, we're going to do this poetry reading, and it's going to be on things from the edge. I should have read the assignment. (laughs) Because I started thinking about things on the edge, and I brought in poems about people from the edge, one about Buddha, one about Lotzu, one about Jesus, and one about Donald Trump. I'll spare you the Donald Trump one. <laughs> but um, so I can, I, the way I can save myself a little bit here is to say that these, at least the three I'll read about, were people who were inspired by solitude and places where they could commune with nature. If you'll let me get away with that, I'll proceed. Ludzu would tell us is the first poem. Ludzu would tell us, if he could, that his foolishness lasted until he was, what, 40, 50, maybe older. His roles an archivist preparing him to see beyond the falling of yesterday and tomorrow. One day you just wake up. Like in a David Byrne lyric, and ask, how did I get here? Suddenly you're Gregor Samsa. Tiny legs scrabbling the air, the boss pounding at your chamber door, and just like that, snap, nothing makes sense. Tumbling out of his life, Lodzu awoke, surrounded by musty parchments, each allegiant breaststroke, a dead terracotta soldier, frozen in eternal review. Even now, Lodzu might say that the fishes of state are rotten at the head, or that standing on point can lead to hammer toes. He might remind us of the transitory nature of the unmovable. It is said that a young Confucius once sought out Latsu and discovered himself ill-prepared for the feast of a grain of rice. Afterwards, confused and consternated, Confucius disclaimed the old man, saying, avoid him, he is dangerous. Ignomatic, isn't it? Paradoxes and cones. You wander through holy places, a piece of flesh amid the stones, astral warmth woven into the searching breezes. Wistful white Ribbons of moisture embracing rocky steeps. And you think, out of nothing, everything, and nothing. The myth of proximity, the faces that comfort, the temporal allegory of otherness. The shadowy arc across the sunset, the sphere of the earth cast upon the void, the dewy constellations of daybreak that all-converging and infinitely emanating center. Okay, I'm going to try Buddha. Buddha. 
Buddha at the dumpster, inside, lid thrown back, and Shiva be damned if he isn't holding a tortilla salad that's mostly intact. And he says, ain't that something? A veggie tortilla salad, swaddled in newspapers, the funnies stuck to the bottom, Mary Worth on the phone, Kathy at the mall, zits and peanuts, Dilbert and boondocks, for better, for worse, non sequitur. He rests the salad on the dumpster's lip, bounds out like an athlete, up and out, just like that, and sees the whole world around him. Buddha by the dumpster, Buddha of the here and now, Buddha of the hosed alley, on his knees watching water, mass on mass, carrying the leavings of the world, watching steam rise and dissipate. Buddha scarfing cheese, salsa, and greens like they're the Pacific Palisades on a sunny day. The corn of the tortilla, a maze of stalks and sun and soil. The hands of men scruffing the cobs. The little harvest, the industrial mashing, the mortar and pistol of it all. Sweet oil squeezed from the corn and fired to cook corn. Then there's the music from a window that sets him smiling like a fool. The humidity on his skin, the lettuce almost fresh, crisp and succulent. The remnants of funnies gnashing into a finer pulp. Somewhere a baby is crying, somewhere. Somewhere a jolt of laughter and the shattering of glass. Car horns, footsteps, the death-rattling lattice of antique plumbing, an urgency of television voices, FM rapsters, and the sweet organic stink of cabbage, fusty as an armpit, the refried beans, warm and soft as baby's food. Could I do Jesus if, if I don't do Trump? Just asking. That's the title. <laughs> Uh, it starts with a quote, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's from the book of Matthew and King James Bible. Everyone keeps asking about Jesus, what he would do. What car would Jesus drive? Would he drive an SUV that accommodates 1 plus 12? Or a soccer van? Or a subcompact? Or take the train or hitch rides? or merely walk the highways and byways dispensing princely peace? Would he host a TV show on PBS, wear an alpaca sweater, and spell L-O-V-E through his gentle devotion to innocence? Would Jesus espouse a political view? Would he favor borders across the land and within our hearts? Would he drug test the poor as a condition of his mercy? Would he lobby for open carry, tote a gun, an NRA card, and a cross? Would he favor military action? Would he support certain interrogation techniques? A little scourging here and there for the greater good. What camouflage would Jesus wear? Would Jesus ask for plastic or paper at the store? Or bring a bag of unbleached, natural, woven hemp fibers for his organic figs and dates? Would he practice stewardship of the planet and bless by his actions all of nature as a living revelation? Would the least of his creatures know his tender mercies? 
Would Jesus support one team over another? Would his grace favor above all others the quarterback kneeling in the end zone, the air walker at the hoop, the pugilist with the bruised brain and shiny belt, the winner of America's Got Talent? Would Jesus stand proudly, his hand to his sacred heart, and render unto Caesar the recitation of a national pledge? Would Jesus engage in usury, take out a loan, purchase an annuity, accumulate interest? Would Jesus avert his eyes from poverty and pain of others? Would he rejoice in the behaviors of those who are acting in his name? Lisa Mednick Powell. So I have a poem that um, I also didn't follow the assignment because it's not exactly about the Mojave. We used to live in Texas, and they have scorpions there too. And and we moved uh, up to New York, upstate New York, western New York. And um, this is this is from unpacking boxes from that came from Texas to. And I think there's a similarity between where we were in Texas, the hill country outside of Austin. Much like here, it used to be a beach. So all of these sort of similarities, I, I think I can get away with this. Right? It's called Scorpion. Unpacking a box last winter, you found Scorpion. You waited a year to tell me about it, thinking I might be upset. But tell me this. Before you threw it away, did you detect a scent of sun-baked cedar or limestone dust or a blast of hill country heat or a flash flood at a low place in the road? That scorpion in the crushed newspaper, it held things. A piece of desert driftwood, a coiled remnant of an ancient seabed, and the silence of a sidewinder, sidewinder curling off into the thicket. It held the breath of a hot highway rushing in the window and across the cracked dashboard of your 1981 Ford F-100 or those one or two cool nights of summer with a bottle of whiskey under stars, ice against the big black ink of sky, while another scorpion hung above us until a meteor shot through the curve of its tail like a smile thrown glint off a gold tooth. That scorpion you found was dead, but I say it was alive with those few things indelible that cling. Memory is not an abstraction. It is solid, or it is smoke, or it is meat, or it is wind across what looks like a blank page, but is really hot, wet ink drying in moments on the clothesline beside a dented red truck in the crumpled brush. I closed out the evening with a story, and so I'm going to share that with you here, too. When I first started thinking about the gifts of the desert, it came along with my beginnings of investigation of mythology. And I was living in New Mexico, and uh, it was when I picked up the book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. As I was reading the introduction of the book... It struck me that here we had this group of people who still live, oldest continuously occupied place in the United States, Orebi, 
which is one of the settlements on one of the three mesas in Arizona. And I thought, wow, these people have lived there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years with this idea that the way they live is essential to the harmony of the planet. And pretty much anybody who has anything to do with my heritage thinks that's absurd. But suddenly, I don't. I don't know how many years it was later, but I went to graduate school and became a mythologist. But I've always loved that book and their creation myths, and I'm not going to tell you the whole big long thing. But according to the Hopi, this is the fourth world. And the first world was created out of the void, and the first people were made by the nephew of the source. They lived happily enough for a while. It's a pretty simple life. You know, they lived very easily with the animals. And after a while, they started forgetting how they were supposed to be using their creative powers and their reproductive abilities. Then the grandfather said, you know, I think that's enough of that. And he had the wise people sequestered as guests of the ants underground, and he set the first world on fire. So then he started over again, and they created another world, and again he employed his nephew, and this time they brought in um, Spider-Woman, and they created a little bit more sophisticated world and a little bit more sophisticated set of human beings. And these people, they weren't on quite the same terms with the animals, but they had crafts, and they lived in villages, and they built homes, and and um, they did okay for a while, and then they started forgetting how they were supposed to be using their creative powers to help maintain the dynamic balance and harmony of the earth. So the creator said, well, you know, okay, let's, let's scotch this one too. So again, all of the wise people got sent down to be the guests of the ants. And by the way, you know, if you've ever wondered why their bodies are these little compartments like squeezed together and the kind of, that's because the ants were so generous to our ancestors. When the people ended up being underground with them a little bit longer than they expected, they started eating less so that the people would have enough to eat. That's why they had these skinny little waists. The second world was covered with ice. And then the third world came into being. And in the third world, again, everything was just a little bit more sophisticated. And this time, the people, they not only had tools and villages, but they lived in cities and created civilizations. And then they discovered what greed was all about. And then they decided to go to war. That world was destroyed. This time, the creator went to Spider-Woman and said, okay, gather up the ones who know what's going on here and put them in hollow reeds because I'm going to flood the whole thing this time. So they're in the hollow reeds, and then the waters start receding, and they're allowed out, and they send birds off. The birds don't come back. So then Spider-Woman helps them make some boats, and so they go around on boats, and they ran into a couple of islands that were kind of pleasant, and Spider-Woman was like, no, you're not allowed to stop here. And so then finally they started building big rafts and going a little bit further and they ran into some more islands and bigger pieces of land that were really nice where the living would be good. And Spider-Woman said, no, you're, you're not allowed to stop here. And so finally they sailed around and around and around and around and they edged and, and landed on the edge of the fourth world, which was kind of a dry place. And Spider-Woman said, 
you got to start walking. And they ended up somewhere in what we now call Arizona. And um, the creator appeared to them. And I just wanted to read to you what the Hopi elders told Frank Waters. He said to them, at the beginning of this world, which is the fourth world, the one we live in now, when the God of the universe left the people at their place of emergence on the shore of the fourth world, he said, the name of this fourth world is Tuwachki, world complete. You will find out why. It is not all beautiful and easy like the previous worlds. It has height and depth, heat and cold, beauty and barrenness. It has everything for you to choose from. What you choose will determine if this time you can carry out the plan of creation on it or whether it must in time be destroyed too. Going back to the comments that I was making at the beginning, I think that the desert is a really important part of the cultural conversation right now because of what we have contact with here, because what those of us love learn from this place. And it has everything to do with possibility and whether or not we can make the right choices. Um, And who do we meet and what do we meet when we're out in the desert? Things come here. People have experiences here you can't have anywhere else. And I think we really need them. Thank you to all of the poets who participated in that marvelous evening. And thank you for listening. That's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life alive.